Aalto University Podcast. This is Cloud Reachers. I'm Tommy. I'm today here with Werner Kuhn. Welcome. Thank you, Tommy. Happy to be here. It's an honor. This is awesome. Uh, how are you doing? Where are you now, actually? <laughs> well, um, I'm at Santa Barbara. at my home downtown, Santa Barbara, which is also my home office, my home concert hall, my home cinema, my home gym, my home anything. Um, and I'm doing... I guess well enough and, and certainly better than deserved. I've given the circumstances and given what other people are going through at the moment. So I certainly can't complain. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've known uh, for a long time, we worked together in Münster and, um, and uh, then I visited uh, Santa Barbara a few times. And um, um, in this episode, um, I mean, building on all of those uh, discussions we've had uh, before, I would really like to um, dive into a few uh, few topics, especially um, to start with your uh, amazing um, scientific career and uh, and your insights from there, um, and of course uh, from many many other uh, things that you have um, been so um, inspirational about. Um, Perhaps uh, let's start uh, from music, uh, because I mean, I, I know that you're a bit uh, music listener and you play yourself. So um, what does music uh, mean to you and how is it connected to, I don't know, many other things that that uh, that inspire you, for example, the slow food movement and and so on? Can you share about those? Hmm. That's a pretty big question. <laughs> I wish I had a quick answer on that, but uh, when I meet people I haven't met before and we talk about tastes and, and, and music, among others, I often feel I need to kind of apologize and say, well, you know, my music tastes are really weird or special or old-fashioned or whatever. And they are, but at the same time, they have taught me to be open and, and interested and appreciative of, of different music tastes and, and learning about music or hearing music that I haven't known before. And, and I think that has pretty much to do with the way I was brought up in a family that on, actually on both sides, on my father's uh, uh, origin family and on my mother's, in my mother's family, uh, music and and. Classical music was played at home as, as uh, you know, a normal thing. And uh, my mother was an excellent violinist and uh, my father was a very good uh, piano player. And I was uh, forced <laughs> to um, absorb this and, and more explicitly forced to learn this. And I was put into, you know, behind a, an instrument and that was part of my daily um, exercise and practice like so many other things in, in school times. And at the time it was hard. I remember uh, on one, uh, for one Christmas, I think it must have been about 12 years old or so, 
Um, this was like early 70s. I, um, one of my most important, uh, most cherished wishes was a tape recorder because I figured I could just once record my practicing and then play it so that the neighbor upstairs who was carefully watching over what I was doing when I was home alone after school um, was, was satisfied that I was actually practicing. Uh, but uh, she didn't leave <laughs> very far. I ended up playing cello. Um, and, but it took some uh, pressure as well as some example. And I'm so glad this was exerted. Wow. Um, have you played also some other instruments? Have you tried out or how is it? Cello is the, the one still. Try this is about the word I would use. I have been yeah. uh, fascinated by keyboards other than the ones we all use today on computers and basically failed. I had a very um, patient uh, teacher of uh, keyboard playing in the form of harpsichord and uh, just decided I probably should spend all the energy and time I have left during a regular you know, professional life uh, on, on the instrument that I have been playing for, well, what is it, 50-some years now, rather than diversify. Some people can do that. I'm, I'm not, you know, music isn't my nature, isn't my uh, um, calling. I just needed in my life and it has uh, proven to be a very good thing to do and to concentrate on and sometimes it falls by the wayside and sometimes it's uh, a really enjoyable way to um, socialize to maintain friendships even here in Santa Barbara um, in Vienna this was uh, a fantastic uh, a uh, door opener to very interesting people, and I hope it will remain that. Mm-hmm. Um, cello is one of my, I don't know, favorite instruments to to listen to. I um, I met one uh, person when I think I think I was seventeen or eighteen, and um, I I still remember um, the sound and and how it created a spatial illusion or illusion of space. So um, how do you think about it? Uh, music, of course, happens over time, but uh, it's also so spatial. I mean, just if you look at the how, how instruments are placed in a, in a concert hall, um, also with audio editing, of course, we can create an illusion of space, like uh, one instrument is coming from the, this side and another side, another one. How do you think about that? Great point. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you, and yet I wonder sometimes to, uh, or about music being that much more temporal than it is spatial, because, as you point out, various aspects are really um, placing <laughs> music firmly in, in space. And, of course, it evolves over time. Um, it's, I remember, for example, um, in, in undergrad physics at ETH, we had a fantastic physics uh, professor who also turned out uh, to be a great, as he called it, fiddle player, but he was actually a very well, a perfectly trained violinist. And he brought his violin 
to one of the lectures, the one on acoustics. And he demonstrated acoustic principles. And what I remember from that lesson, apart from the obviously impressive fact that he was playing in front of a you know, 400 student audience uh, in a acoustically not exactly perfect um, auditorium at, at the university. Uh, but what I remember is that, well, or is that his message that making a auditorium like this one, or much more importantly, a, a concert hall acoustically, not even perfect, but just good, is a very hard thing to do. And, and, and physics alone and the theory alone, at least at that time, 30 years ago or so, don't get us there. So dealing with space, music in space, uh, with, with, with resonance, with um, so many other uh, aspects that are more spatial than temporal is, 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 is hugely important. And, you know, this also, we'll talk about this later, but it, it mm. also resonates almost literally with a research where I find spatial information is hardly ever just spatial. <laughs> it's mm. all also temporal, which is kind of the, the flip side of the coin. Mm. So uh, listening to music uh, perhaps can help you to uh, learn spatial thinking, the principles of spatial thinking that, okay, well, not everything is in, in one single direction, but it's, it's the spatial configuration that, that really, really matters. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people like Andrew Frank, my mentor in, in the academic field, have um, suspected, a long, suspected a long time ago that in, in our specialty of geographic information systems and the mapping, computer mapping, we basically made a mistake of separating space and time. And, and, mm. and sometimes I think if you look at disciplines, um, at large, those who separate the two are probably not doing as well in, in helping humanity move forward and, and, and helping us solve problems than those who, who have traditionally integrated the two. Mm. Um, hey, I would like to have a deep dive in your academic career, but before that, uh, just before that, uh, still about the uh, slow food uh, movement. Um, I know that it's uh, one of the principles, for example, of the Vespucci Summer Institute that uh, you have uh, founded uh, with others. So um, can you share us about uh, Slow Food Movement and, and Vespucci uh, Summer Institute? Well, you know, to be honest, like, like so many things that I've become fond of, I never studied them in depth. <laughs> But maybe that was the easiest way to, to become and to remain in front of. Um, but of course, there would be much more to know about the slow movement, slow uh, food movement, as well as the many other slow movements that have sort of uh, emerged based on these ideas than, than I know. Uh, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable, except that you know, sometimes I think was this news to me when I worked in Italy with a friend who was actually a, 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 a driving force in the slow food movement and who helped us create the, the summer schools and, and the think tanks. And, and of course, we had fabulous demonstrations of what slow food uh, can mean, even, you know, above what we would expect or have 
had come to expect for Italian food, which is just uh, just wonderful in my opinion. Um, but then I thought back to how I learned about food or how I just had food all my life or as a child. And, uh, you know, even my mother being a single parent, uh, working very hard, um, always basically produced slow food at home. And that uh, started with breakfast where, we, where she took time and made sure I was getting up or tried hard at least in time to have a leisurely breakfast with candles during Christmas time. Uh, all the way to maybe a nightcap and with all the meals in between that we even could share. Um, she never showed me anything else than slow food. Mm. And, uh, you know, of course, slow food means much more today and has has, has much more to tell us than, than these um, relatively uh, uh, traditional ways of eating food at home, not with the TV on, we didn't even have a TV, but sitting together and sharing either what's coming in the day or what happened in the day and enjoying food that had been prepared with uh, the necessary attention. And I still do that. I eat super slowly. I enjoy cooking. Um, and well, anyway, you asked about the implications for, for our work in Vespucci and otherwise, um, we, I wrote about this in a, in a magazine column at the time. I'm, I was struck and I remain struck how those of us teaching and doing research kind of fall into either the slow food for thinking, as I called it then, or, or, or maybe the towards the fast food for thinking category. And the differences are uh, pretty amazing and, and, and telling. Now, some students prefer fast food, uh, and, and I mean the intellectual food, and, and they may have good reasons. They kind of pay and, and they want more bang for the buck per minute, I guess. Um, but I prefer... Um, and, 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 and I've always encouraged people like Nicola Guarino, for example, famous ontologist, who spent a 90-minute lecture at one of our summer institutes with talking about three of the many more slides that he had because he felt there was resonance. There were people reacting, or if not, he, he could get them to react and to at least thoroughly understand the one or two important slides among the three. And I still remember these slides. And I forget 60 slide presentations immediately. So yeah. it, it's a personal preference, but if science and if learning is about understanding, then you know, we probably don't gain much by speeding it up. Mm. Mm. Excellent, I, and I I remember in Vespucci it was um, of course there is slow food, but um, it's so much about discussion while enjoying this slow food, right? It is, it is, and uh, and uh, that's how we start to perhaps understand, or at least it's a chance of starting to understand something when we interactively 
exchange thoughts about the about the um, for example about spatial information or like you mentioned about ontologies and, and on its representation. Yeah, and just you know, and, and I learned this again in many ways from Andrew Frank and some other people that you know if you don't have time for it then what's the point right make time mm. for it and i keep surprising and, and i'm not one to often have you know uh, or to have enough expressed the stance that i'm here and available for you and i have time for mm. you but i want to do that and and those who did it with me have been the most influential people in my career and you know, um, spending time and 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 and, and focus uh, on something that is of value to somebody else is probably the best thing we can do, right? Mm, absolutely. Nice that you mentioned that your mother actually taught you about slow food <laughs> movement before it was perhaps a word even. And uh, same happened with my mother. I mean, it's uh, this is perhaps. I mean, we never thought we never talked about it, but uh, this is absolutely a, a connection point. So uh, my mother did it as well. And uh, I have to share one thing. Uh, she always said that. Okay, Tommy, if everything else is collapsing, make sure you have good food. <laughs> this is the oh. most important thing. And it is, and it is, and I've been taught the same thing. And of course, presumably, neither your mother nor mine told us about the concept of slow food. This was just absolutely no, 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 to be, and how it was meant to be prepared and eaten and appreciated. And yeah, I'm so glad about this, and I'm glad to hear you're coming from that background. Yeah, and she was. Uh, Big, big fan of Italy and uh, brought furniture from Italy and, and uh, introduced us to Italian uh, food culture and, and many other cultures as well. Also Finnish uh, food culture in, in many, many ways. This is, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, we need this, um, these learnings. I mean, and, and, and like we talked with, it's, it's something to learn from the childhood already. And then later on, it's, uh, it's so, um, it can be so decisive, like uh, how, whether to go for the fast thinking and just use your intuition always and, and just say that, okay, well, I, I think it is like that and, uh, and then crushing your points through without um, ever really um, thinking about it. And academia, obviously, it's, uh, it's a place that where we at least uh, should be able to think and, and, and uh, understand and then, of course, share this understanding to the wider uh, society. Um, yes, we would hope that this, you know, remains or, or if if it has been lost, comes back. And I'm, I've, I've been feeling a bit lonely on the slow side and, 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 and with certainly good reasons um, um, judged as, well, maybe that shouldn't take that much time, right? And pretty much felt like uh, I can ignore that. It takes the time it takes. And, and some mm. things need to reach the time or the moment where they fall into place. And, but one can mm. say that once one is approaching retirement and it's a luxury and it's a privilege that we do have in academia. I mean, this would be very mm. different 
I was working in industry. Mm, absolutely. Um, you have worked in um, so many key universities uh, uh, that that have um, contributed to the spatial information. You have um, understanding of spatial information, how to use it. And now you are in uh, UC Santa Barbara and previously have been in um, how many places and which places you have actually worked at? I've lost count. <laughs> But, you know, for, for, for longer periods, like several years, it's uh, ETH Zurich, then a brief stint and another one at the University of Maine, then um, the um, University of Technology in Vienna, then Münster, uh, Australia, Germany, for the longest period that I've ever been able to stick to one place, namely 17 years. And mm. now for the last seven or eight years at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And in between, you know, a half year of sabbatical at San Diego, a, uh, a few months in Edinburgh and a few months in Melbourne, Australia. I'm a, I'm a uh, I don't know, I don't want to say a gypsy, but uh, I'm restless and nomadic. And I enjoy that, and others don't. It's a it's personal choice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's a great selection of universities. Um, what do you think uh, if you think about university as a concept, or as as I mean, via these examples, of course, where you have um, um, worked at. So, what does university mean to you? Hmm. Is there like an ideal university and uh, if there are ideal universities or university, then what are characteristic, characteristics of such a university? I doubt there is. Of course, each university, and that's just fine, thinks of itself, hopefully, as being the ideal university, right? That they should. And they tell us it is. And um, often I've come to a new place where I heard why they think they are so great, and I probably, to a large extent, agree to that and, 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 and appreciate this special way in which they are, if not ideal, then at least, well, um, special and, and, and proud of doing something the right way. Uh, that was certainly the case at the place where I'm now, University of California, Santa Barbara, Uh, which is special and ideal in so many ways. But looking back, every one of them has been special and ideal in some ways, at least at some time. And uh, I I wouldn't, well, maybe I could now, you know, formulate an abstract requirement for an ideal university, but it's not going to happen. It's probably not out there. And I'm happy to have had places that for the time I was there, were pretty much ideal and sometimes I only realized later um, like ETH in Zurich, my alma mater which was painful to be a student there I mean we have like 38, I recently looked it up we had 36 to 38 weekly contact hours right? oh, I'm not bragging about <laughs> the old times and how one were in dealing with them but it was painful <laughs> Yet, looking back at the teachers we had, the things we were able to 
you know, absorb and learn and share and suffer <laughs> are, uh, are just experiences I wouldn't want to not have had and, and often think of, oh, wow, you undergrads here, um, I'm, I'm sad for you not having that kind of experience, the breadth, the, the, the enormous just time pressure we were under. But anyway, um, looking back, sometimes things look better than they looked at the time, and sometimes they don't look as good as I was trying to make them to, to feel good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's all about survival at the moment and believing that you're in a place that you can do something um, that, that uh, is commensurate with what you want to do and with your maybe abilities and skills and and, and does something good for the rest of, mm. of us or of, and for students and for colleagues. And, and they mm. all, all places I've been at were ideal in their own way. Mm. Mm. I can so connect to that. I mean, <laughs> I was just... Uh, seeing kind of the flow of my experience from the universities I have worked at. And uh, I, I so connect to that. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I know that you are planning now a new blog um, about your experiences or insight about the academia. Um, is it too early or <laughs> can you share the listeners something about that? Like, uh, I don't know, like a yeah, some... Well, some I'm, I'm glad you bring uh, this up in the context of... Uh, ideals rather than frustrations <laughs> but you know <laughs> to be honest, that's how it came about because i increasingly you know, i'm getting old and and and, and, and cranky and, and complaining and uh, feel i don't really owe anybody anything anymore and i can say what i think if i don't agree with certain decisions or or the lack thereof which is worse um but I'm trying to, and that's why it's delayed. That's why it's not out there. I don't want to have a series of rants, uh, just uh, venting frustrations. There's no point in doing that, right? It makes me more unhappy that, than I need to be, and it doesn't really serve any, any purpose. So I decided to turn it around and, and call it, for the moment at least, it's not yet out there and, and don't... Hold your breath, but it will arrive eventually. I call it uh, um, Confessions of a Retired Academic. And part of it, you know, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, hopefully a lot of it tongue-in-cheek and not too serious. Just to look at how academia um, works today, what academics are expected to do and how they are expected to do it. And asking myself, I don't have, you know, I don't have the answer to this or the truth or, or a better, a better um, um, notion of these things than, than anybody else does. But just asking, you know, if, if science, if academia is about understanding um, the world in, in, you know, in a very broad sense and, and, and um, helping young people normally, or at least uh, you know, in, in an early career stage, to uh, reach another level of understanding and bring that to fruition for some type of work. Um, are we 
are we doing this in the best way we can? And is the uh, you know money being the the bottom line of just about everything? Um, student acquisition, project acquisition, um, anything you do, and, and 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 the evaluation of what you do again leading to money for yourself is is that the right way, the best way of doing it. It creates incentives, but it also creates other things that are not so perfect. And, 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 and that may not even be the main thrust of it. And I probably will structure it around these ideas of, you know, um, grants and projects versus um, where are we going with the university structure and the challenges that we have seen, especially now in terms of changes of what the universities do um, and uh, what what is important, what is less important. And uh, we'll see what the outcome of this is. And it's just going to be a personal opinion. But if I see any audience in it, it is hopefully the younger academics who... I often feel are almost intimidated um, and, and certainly under, under huge pressure mm. to do things the way that the, pardon me, old farts um, tell them to do and mm. not object until they have at least tenure. By that time, they're basically lost cases because they have uh, grown up with that type of rat race and may not have time anymore to think about uh, what will really advance us. So I'm pretty mm. skeptical about the future of academia, as you can tell, and maybe that can make a little, I don't know, not, it will not have an impact, but at least it can make a few more people think about whether we are, or how we should move forward, not whether we are doing the right thing, just what, what for every one of us is the best way to bring us into that game or something more serious. Mm. I think that is, uh, that is um, somehow it's just amazing your ability to identify key challenges or key problems. So I, I so much look, look forward to your blog about it. Um, I so connect to many of the things you say. I mean, age index, money index, uh, whatever index, these, these indices are, are, um, are really the part of the rat race uh, in the academia. And, uh, and, but if you don't realize all these problems, then it's absolutely no way of producing any solutions either, right? Exactly. And it's what you're referring to, the indexes. A friend of mine calls it the number game. And uh, science is not about the number game. It's about ideas. It's also not about publications. Mm. Uh, having ideas that are worth publishing and developing mm. them. And mm. at the moment, we are not encouraging those. Yeah, and uh, talking about ideas, I, um, um, I would like to have a deep dive on, um, on the core concepts of spatial information um, that you have introduced. So um, can you share the listeners, uh, well, what they are and uh, how can the society, companies, academia make uh, use of the core concepts of spatial information? Hmm. Um, I'll try uh, to 
paraphrase Moliere, the famous saying, you and everybody else and the listeners have been making use of these core concepts for their entire lives. They just weren't aware of it. And I'm not here to make them aware of it, but I think that there is some value in understanding more precisely and, 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 and even formally how we look at spaces, which means at spatial environments. That can be our desktop, it can be our neighborhood, it can be our city, it can be a landscape in which we hike, can be an ocean, a continent, a planet, uh, even uh, larger scales, but it can also be organs, um, human organs, a heart, a, a brain, or smaller spaces like molecules. And the claim, which is pretty audacious, and uh, I hope nobody really forces me to ever prove that, but I can at least assemble some ideas that seem plausible in that context. The claim is that and, and that's not my idea, of course. It's just sort of pulling together ideas that are in the literature already. The claim is that there is not an infinity of ways looking at these spaces. And in fact, this huge, large range of spaces are pretty much understood in the same ways with, you know, gifts and takes. So... The, the claim is there is, at the moment at least, and that has been pretty stable, there is four ways of understanding a space, and, uh, and that's it. And if that's the case, then we probably should reconsider at least how we teach technologies that map these spaces or deal with, compute about these spaces or communicate them, because... At the moment, we are doing this in a pretty messy way and in a way that is much more concerned with software architectures and data models and, and, and commands and, and, and the history, understandably, of, of how these technologies have evolved than with some pretty simple, um, well, at least <laughs> in the overall setup pretty simple distinctions between, well, is your space one that consists of things that interact with each other, that uh, may be close or far from each other, etc., Or is it more like a space, let's take an ocean, that uh, is not an assembly of things for most of us, but that has is probably something in three dimensions, water that has certain properties like salinity, or um, temperature, and these can be measured in any of its um, positions. And then there's a couple more, um, but these are, I think, the basics for anybody dealing with spaces, be that in daily life as well as in, in a more professional form. And I hope that can be useful for you know, the future, the design of future systems, and, and more importantly for the the teaching and the learning of how to benefit from these systems in, in whatever they do, right? whether they lead us through an unknown environment or um, whether they help solve um, challenges like um, climate change. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Hey, thanks for sharing. And I, I have to say, I, <laughs> I um, had uh, your uh, article on core concepts um, uh, of spatial information as a reading in my information visualization class. And uh, students just absolutely loved it. And uh, I think they learned based on the reflections they wrote, they learned so much. So I think, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful and, and, um, and I think the students were as well. I'm happy to thankful hear that. For I'm yeah. grateful you did that. Uh, the only problem is I should follow up with the book that uh, tells them a bit more about this. And the good news is, the story gets simpler and simpler. And, and the bad news is uh, it often takes a long time to make a story simple. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, that's, but I mean, that's why we are also here. And uh, I mean, there is so many great examples from design where I mean, something that is simple, it just took, I don't know, 50 years or five years at least to, to really create that. And then everybody says that, oh, it's, you know, it's a bit too simple. <laughs> Right. Even so, <laughs> that can happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have tons of examples of that uh, from my career, but uh, but uh, I would like to um, hear more about. Uh, you mentioned grand challenges. I mean, obviously, climate change, this whole pandemic around COVID nineteen, um, misinformation certainly. Uh, to give a few examples, so um, um, how do you see? Um, really creating insight of of um of what works best uh, to tackle these grand challenges how does it um how does it work how do we best as a academia or society best address these grand challenges and uh, how do we even get insight or i don't know intuition or 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 Perhaps through rational thinking, um, closer to even uh, proposing solutions. What do you think? <laughs> Another big one. Yeah, um, <laughs> which I have an answer. And and of course, we are all you know having our own convictions and hobby horses that we are riding. And, and the obvious one, but that's not the one I want to focus on. Is that understanding how space and time are not just you know, specialties for the geographers or maybe the physicists, um, but they are pretty fundamental in understanding a lot of um, phenomena and a lot of uh, challenges, as you say, that, that we are facing. But but that's a story on its own and, and, and it takes more time to explain. Um, how do we make progress? How do I think we can best make progress and others have certainly more fruitful ideas. Um, I, over time, and, and it started sort of with my move to Santa Barbara, at which time I read a, uh, a history of, I think the title is a his, The History of Science in the 20th Century and Beyond, which is a fascinating account of how science actually works, as opposed to how, for example, funding agencies would uh, think it works uh, and uh, the bottom line is it works by taking its starting point for for research from problems of the real world that does not mean that it is short-sighted or 
or, or uh, you know, sort of a immediate benefit kind of uh, um, research and, and, and favors that, not at all. But it means that it takes a point of departure from an actual real-world problem that we thoroughly understand that is out there. And that's not a big well, it, of course, it's part of a big problem, but it's, it, the, the actual real-world problem is not global warming. It needs to be more specific. Right? The particular form of oceans warming or currents changing or weather patterns or whatever, but also more maybe down to earth or more, more, more mundane things of um, you know, uh, social um, issues that we have in neighborhoods um, take these problems and derive a um, thorough and, and worthwhile scientific problem from them. And you may not solve the actual problem that you started from, but at least what you're doing is grounded in, in, in these problems. And what that history of the science um, claims and, and actually shows us and quite convincingly and, and, and documented is that you know the idols of the of 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 of, of big science of 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 very complicated thinking and 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 Nobel Prize kind of research like Albert Einstein um, he apparently derived a lot of what um, turned into special and then general theory of relativity from his work at the patent office in Bern, where he had to deal with proposals for synchronizing clocks and realized what the actual problems were in, in doing that. And obviously went on way beyond uh, the practical problem addressed in, in the patents. Um, and, and there is many other examples of this. There's uh, also other books that uh, belabor this. And, and I've always had this tendency, and I've often gotten lost in the actual specific problem before making any progress. But I still prefer this over the idea that is, I think, uh, fundamental to US NSF funding and, and, and even of our whole field that, well, first comes the big theory and you should let scientists sort of become creative and, 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 and visionary in, with theories. And then eventually this will trickle down into useful applications that will, uh, we are sure, solve actual problems. Um, I basically have given up on this idea as much as I've done, you know, the mistake of, of, of running after this uh, illusion. It's, it's a bit like trickle-down economy that was ridiculed after Reagan and others made it uh, um, maybe not popular, but at least politically correct. And um, both are plain wrong, I think. Uh, wealth doesn't trickle down on itself, as we can see. It trickles the other way, trickles up. And knowledge doesn't either. You start from an actual problem or you will never get there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I absolutely couldn't agree more. I mean, that's why also uh, what, what we, I mean, it was fantastic to hear 
you're saying that. Um, can you um, share, um, listeners, a few examples, perhaps, where spatial information has been crucial for solving a real problem? Good question. <laughs> um, you know, whom, who am I to judge whether a real problem was actually solved by spatial thinking? But yeah. um, if you take some, you know, common, commonly accepted um, praise for scientific work, such as Nobel Prizes, and um, look at Paul Krugman's work um, and, and read the you know, dedication and why he got the Nobel Prize. Well, it was essentially for a spatial view of economics. And he delivered a whole series of lectures independently of that on how it would be, it could be much more valuable than had been realized in the past to combine Economic thinking, which is typically very good at putting a problem, a social problem, basically, um, in terms of a simple formula, formalizing it, but, but often radically simplifying it in the process, uh, but largely ignoring space. That was his thesis. Uh, we do away with any spatial, because it's, it's, it's annoying, right? We don't want to have to deal with scale and with neighborhood and with all of this. That should be um, factored out. Uh, and combining this with the geographer's skills, which are exactly complementary. They are experts, presumably, and, and, and love to study spatial interaction and proximity and, and the effect of it. But they are not exactly known to make problems, uh, turn them into formal um, um, form or make or, or simplify them. That's just not something either geographers or other spatial engineering uh, uh, disciplines have been have been good at. And, and he had this uh, grand vision, which still needs a lot to to happen actually to bring these things together. But his own work is, is certainly uh, proof and the Nobel Prize he got of this. And there's others and other Nobel Prizes as well, um, where we see there is value in looking at even just, you know, what's nearby and how is it affected by what you're talking about. And um, well, for example, David Brooks' work in, 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 in um, well, uh, He's a journalist, but a deep thinker. Um, he, he's, if I understand it correctly, one of his main theses uh, over the past several years has been um, it's neighborhoods that matter. It's not state governments or um, the economy at large. It's how we deal with our neighborhoods and, and how they deal with us and how they shape us and influence us and our social relations. And we are a social animal, one of the book titles he issued. These are all more hand-waving than, than specific examples, but in all of these, and I mentioned them for, for this reason, the idea of, or, or some idea of space, and it is often just that distinction of 
as Waldo Tobler uh, famously said, nearby things being more related than um, things that are further apart. That seems so basic to a geographer and yet is so important. And yet, as Waldo Tobler also said, the exceptions are even more important. But that means we think spatially and, and it's, it's never wrong to try. It doesn't always help us solve all the problems we wish it did. Mm -hmm. Hey, thanks for sharing um, about your insight. Um, um, I would like to ask you, um, I was just thinking at the same time also about, uh, about your work at the academia. And um, uh, I'm curious to know, um, can you share some, uh, I don't know, perhaps a turning point in your career or life, something that made you yourself uh, to think differently about life, about research, about academy, about learning, about anything, some turning point? Just one. Well, I mean, can be also many, but uh, or, yeah. or if, if they are happening nearby, of course. They <laughs> I wish I was such a uh, you know consistent and long-term um, planning or or continuing type of person or, or or researcher. I'm not, and you know whether for better or for worse, I pretty much regularly after periods of five to seven years um, either felt the need for a turning point and sought one and, and, and then found it, or it, it kind of found me and, and I went maybe not in an entirely different direction. I'm, I'm pretty much, even though I didn't know and, and, and still don't entirely understand, I'm pretty much still interested in the same things. And I would tell you a different thing or different things that these are. But um, in a fundamental way, my interests haven't changed and probably my attitude and my, my way of dealing with things hasn't changed. But I needed fresh air, um, different environments, uh, different even people to work with every so often and much more often than others do. And I haven't regretted this. As I mentioned before, Munster 17 years was... Uh, by far the longest, it, it's probably around two of these, you know, seven plus or minus two year periods um, juxtaposed. It doesn't work exactly for, for the number of years. And if you, and, and maybe the one in between, that change in between, if you ask for one, may have been the most important and most valuable one for me and possibly for others. Uh, and that was the realization after having had you know, a group size of 35 people or so and racing and running after contract renewals and hirings and firings and, and personal issues, personnel issues, um, I decided that's not going to be very satisfactory, neither for those who work with me nor for me nor beneficial for whatever I'm supposed to do. And downsized, and, and I remember going on a kind of a personal retreat and thinking about, so what is it that I really want to move forward and, and how would I do that? And it became Musil that, you know, the Munster Semantic Interoperability Lab, with all its weaknesses and with all its, you know, temporary nature, but making that 
that change from a big group that does almost everything, or at least is spread out over a large area of, of at the time, geoinformatics issues, to a narrow-minded uh, but focused research group in which every PhD and master student was required to and could aspire to understand what everybody else did to a relatively large extent and therefore had something to share and exchange and, 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 and jointly aspire to. That was you know, hugely important, hopefully uh, not just for me. And okay, others realized that this is the way it should be done much earlier than I did, but uh, it came to me at the age of whatever. Um, probably uh, 45 years or so. Mm. Amazing. I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed uh, Musila for two and a half years or so. And um, I have to say that, I mean, it's so interesting. If if planning for, I mean, planning for actions to to um, that led to you to establish Musil, if that was your uh, one of your turning points, then uh, the result, I mean, Musil <laughs> was then one of my turning points. So that's super interesting connection point. It's um, it's uh, not exactly timely aligned, but it's one leads one thing leads to another. But you know that was um, brought about by you guys, by by the students, by the doctoral students, by the master students, by the challenging undergrads, and by the postdocs like you were. Uh, I could just try to minimize distractions and, 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 and especially um, separations and isolations. And the rest was your work and it was, you know, you all, it was uh, a phenomenal time. <laughs> oh Once yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we can, I mean, just, I mean, you brought there basically the soul there, I have to say, and, uh, and uh, all those fantastic ideas. I mean, I'm still, Think about that. How on earth, uh, for example, um, there was this, um, our research group meeting, Muslim group meeting was uh, also a class for students, right? So students were <laughs> sitting in rows and, and, and writing their reflections about the group meetings. And uh, that's just fantastic, phenomenal idea as itself. I think yeah, that was not mine, you know, that, that I just looked around for how friends and colleagues and more senior people were successful and, 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 and if they had the same ideals and aspirations or, or lack thereof that I had and, and, and created something interesting and, and, and then I did my thing and uh, was really, really lucky to have, you know, very unusual PhD students. And, and this is something mm. I keep hearing back from employers and, and colleagues and students of them. Um, I was uh, very lucky. I don't yeah. know what made this happen. I, uh, I have no recipe. <laughs> sort of well-rounded, not that I am, but at least that was maybe the, um, fostering the need for having well-rounded people around me. People mm -hmm. who had interesting lives, interesting um, activities beyond what they were expected to do in a PhD. Like Einstein said, the value of a scientist is what remains when you take the science away. 
well, what is that? You know, not that I asked them, but there was a sense <laughs> that this is an interesting person and uh, I want to work with them, especially, uh, and I might be too proud of this probably, but if they contradicted me, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing more annoying than a student, a PhD student who um, looks up to you and praises your wisdom and insight oh, and literature and everything. And I say, and now, where do we go from here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They are basically just simply too easily pleased. Uh, then <laughs> where's the learning? I mean, where? how can you learn if you are just absorbing everything, right? So, Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Hey, talking about learning, uh, what did you learn uh, last time? Did it happen online or through a book or through discussions or how? Hmm. Or all of the above? Um, um, I mean, anything that comes <laughs> to your... To mean tonight or... Yeah, or, or can or be tonight or... Yeah. Kind um, of last, last thing. Meaning to... Uh, not in any way to brag, but... Or, or, or even to single this out, but um, I, I love learning as slow as I am, <laughs> like slow food for thought. Um, it's the salt in my life. And, uh, it's fascinating to learn. Well, just one example, and, and, and I, uh, that's the most recent one, I guess. I'm listening to the audiobook of... Uh, Um, Barack Obama's uh, memoir, uh, him uh, reading his own writing, which both are interesting and fascinating skills that he has. And I learn about what it means to uh, be in one of the most, or get in, first of all, get into one of the world's, if not the world's most powerful position at the time of dramatic crises and trying to help and do not solve all the problems at once, but make appreciable context, uh, progress in the context of, of certain um, subdomains or sub-problems. And, and just listening to him, and obviously he's biased and he's telling his own story, but learning about What this means in a day-to-day sense, I confess as much interest as I have and some knowledge in politics and history. Um, what this means on a day-to-day level is very, very interesting to learn. And, and then, of course, you know, I try to learn about my own subject and many other subjects. And this can come from any sources and maybe... And I hope that's not just a, a cheap uh, um, compliment. It, it, it truly very often comes from students I'm working with. Not that they kind of formally teach me or tell me, well, you know, this is how it works and they often do and that's great. But by challenging and saying, well, are you so sure? Or, but how about this? And uh, that's what I meant before with the, the ones who are, criticizing or, or, or critically reflecting what I say, that's what has all of us learned. And, and, and in, a, in a PhD or in research in general, we learn from each other. It's not a top-down or any other uh, one-sided mm. or, or, or one-way communication or, or learning process. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And if you just think about the word uh, studying, I mean, that we use in, in research, some is studying. I mean, it's, it's about learning, right? I mean, we are studying a, a problem to, to find a solution. We are studying different approaches and perhaps literature says something, perhaps it doesn't say sometimes um, anything near the solution. Then we have to come up with something and then we learn, I don't know, perhaps we study some other fields if they have some close by approaches that we could perhaps apply here. So that's um, that's very interesting. Um, as long uh, as we are not pressured into, or for lack of any better examples or ideas, kind of learn, do do rote learning and try mm. to you know, absorb thick volumes of textbooks or recipes, cookbook recipes of how to deal with a problem. That's pretty useless. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. To my high school math teacher, uh, who had very high standards, and and I started very low <laughs> at the beginning of high school with my grades in math, but I kind of took a liking to his um, idea that there's nothing you need to remember or learn by heart. You just uh, well, there's maybe one theorem, the, I remember the, the, the theorem of Vieta, which relates um, uh, the, the, the solutions to uh, um, quadratic equations. Um, but if you know how to work through a math problem, you can, it's a skill. It, it, it's not a mm. memorized set of steps that you, um, that makes you successful. And, and, and that has I have a terrible memory, so memorizing is out of the question to begin with. Uh, but I appreciate areas like math and to some extent like other you know, computational things where I can figure out how to go about solving a problem and, and, and then remember mm. that approach rather than the step-by-step solution to a single problem that will fail in a slightly different problem, right? Mm-hmm. That's how we also we find our own limitations. I um, I decided as a child that I I try to calculate everything in my head that I can possibly do, and then I found also my limitations. I mean, some <laughs> calculations I couldn't, <laughs> so I had to use the pen and paper. But at least I found my limitations, my edges, right? So I never used calculator if I really didn't need it. And then sometimes I <laughs> realized, no, no, I actually need it. So then just, you know, kind of understanding that um, that um, our own capabilities, which uh, um, also leads me to think about how, how do you think about, I mean, now we have all the navigation aids and, uh, and of course, calculators, computers and, and whatnot. Self-driving cars are going around already now in many, many states um, in USA and in other countries. So how do you think, uh, how, how would you, how do you predict that? Uh, what is, how does the world look like, uh, let's say in 10 years? How does the university look like? What is the future of work or our societies of academia? I know that these are big questions, but how do you, <laughs> how do you see it? Hmm. Ask somebody who is uh, farsighted. I'm, I'm myopic <laughs> in many ways. 
And, and I've always been bad in these scenarios where, you know, in, in like a workshop, a conference, let's come up with a vision for, it was mm. used to be 2020, then of course, <laughs> moving forward. Uh, I'm not good at this. And I don't know what, you know, how the world will look like. If, if I did, I would probably be more successful in other businesses. Um, but I, I, I also learned with some crucial experiences, actually, that haven't exactly won me too many friends, uh, to kind of disrespect research agendas, for example. Because they come from this notion of, first of all, trickle down, top down, somebody knows better what to do. So here is how we explain to you what you should be working on as a poor, um, uh, un- ill-informed young researcher. Um, I, I've, and I was in charge of, well, not the, well, I was in charge, but of course I worked with other people of developing a research agenda for Agile, which is the European Association for Geographic Information Laboratories when it was founded 20 years ago. And I basically neglected my charge and said, well, maybe the best thing we can do is produce a map of who is doing what, where, so that there is more interaction between them, rather than telling the members, well, if you want to be a member of Agile, you should be working on these five top priority issues. Mm. So that's not exactly on the topic of what you're asking, but it is in the same spirit, um, refusing to commit to a longer Mm. term vision. And as as you probably know, the the, the great former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt said that, uh, well, if your visions go and see your doctor. Um, and I just did actually last week and what he told me is that well remember that the present is the only thing we have and I kind of said well that resonates well with me I I may still be thinking too much about the future when I plan work rather Mm. than just things done for example yeah no but that's uh that's so great that you say that okay well we know I mean we just need basically to map uh, ways the expertise and uh, that that's uh, that's actually a better roadmap than any other roadmap if I think about it I mean because the roadmaps are typically you have uh, some gun chart or whatever and you say that oh yeah AI will come let's say 2025 to the universities and and then then you wait 20 wait five years and then you realize oh well it didn't come and then you <laughs> shift this perhaps uh, five years. But uh, but uh, perhaps really mapping uh, ways the expertise, like you said, in the world and who knows what and who can do what also, perhaps that is that is really the the roadmap that we need, the actual vision that we need. Maybe not that yeah. I wouldn't go that far, but at least it's the map that allows us to build roads. Right? Yeah, and there yeah. are going to be bridges to nowhere. There are going to be roads that connect meaningful mm. settlements, so to speak. But I was heavily, and, and understandably, I kind of, you know, ignored my task. I was heavily criticized for this. Um, but I have never seen research agendas that meant anything uh, mm. except for influencing, um, you know, grant agencies, and there is a value in this, of course. But mm. apart from mm. that, what do you do with one? <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks. Uh, um, 
thinking um, you mentioned uh, about um, starting um, researchers now, uh, perhaps uh, uh, checking your um, blog um, when you start releasing it. Uh, but uh, as as of now, um, what do you think uh, for somebody starting now the academic journey or somebody who perhaps already started but is somehow lost in this whole space of, of academia, um, what would you what would be your advice to them? Uh, what to focus on and how to select different paths perhaps in this complex world of grant applications and and uh, agencies well, okay. and so on. Maybe the best advice to give them is not to listen to us old farts if you try to give them advice. And and I mean this more seriously than it sounds. It's uh, and and I've always said this, and I've certainly always uh, pursued it myself at, at that time, and, and still do. Find out what you're burning for. Find out where your passion, the passions are, what you're passionate for, and. If you go in that direction or in those directions, at least you're probably going to be pretty good at it because that's what passion typically leads to if it doesn't lead you totally astray. Um, if um, if not, well, not much is actually lost. And I have often had second thoughts and, and reconsidered, is, is, is this adequate? Is this, um, you know, um, even responsible to tell a young kid or a student or even before, um, given that obviously it's much harder for a young academic. It was much harder for you than it was for me. It's, and I don't know whether you agree, but it's typically much harder for you students now uh, to um, figure out what to do, make a living, become successful, become recognized uh, for, for many reasons, not all of them good, but uh, that's just a fact of life. So given all these constraints and how tough it is, and plus societal and family and other health constraints coming on top of this, is it, is it maybe just arrogant to say, well, you know, follow your guts and you'll be fine. And I don't know, but I hope it's not. And I just told my my godchild, for example, he's he he just finished his master's thesis uh, in in yeah, mechanical engineering, a version of it for medical applications. And and he um, and I asked him how his job search going, and he says, well, you know, I have this option or that option. And I said, well, you know. <laughs> If I had to choose, I would go for my gut's feelings. And mm. today he replies, well, that's what I did. And I got the right job, I think. And that's <laughs> not It's just uh, anecdotal evidence. And, and mm. I've made mistakes by following my gut's feelings. And I've probably offended people or not served in certain roles the way I should have. But at least... Uh, I was true to myself. I believed in what I was doing. And mm. uh, I could have hurt people more in, in other ways, in, in following an abstract, prescribed 
uh, research agenda or whatever other agenda I would be following, be that the one of parents or of um, authorities of some other nature. Mm. That's, um, I, I totally get your point. And uh, I mean, I've been following my passions for a longer time, but I also get your point that, okay, perhaps it's for some reason or another, perhaps it doesn't work always and it hasn't, hasn't also worked for me always, but most of the time it has worked. So <laughs> perhaps this is, this is the, still the best advice that we can give. Thanks for mm-hmm. sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Um, I mean, this, uh, I mean, um, the podcast is uh, called Cloud Reachers, uh, meaning that uh, there is perhaps some cloud or dream, something to reach out. Um, who, who do you think um, is the cloud reacher in your field or in the world, kind of bringing the world forward, the field f- forward? reaching out clouds, dreaming of something better and perhaps also doing something about it to reach out clouds. Hmm. Um, You know, following up on on what we discussed before, if we knew her name, it would probably not be the most promising candidate. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm saying is that you know, we just don't know who will be making, having a major impact, making discoveries mm. or just products or designs or, 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 or whatever else they are creating, uh, be that in science or, or outside, uh, that will have an impact that we just can plan for or expect now. Um, I, I see very promising young people uh, doing fantastically interesting things. And if I had to, you know, not pick an individual, but say, well, these kinds of people are more likely to be the ones that will, um, whatever the measure may be, but that will, in your terms, uh, reach um, or tower above the rest or reach the clouds, then, and I may be wrong, I may be totally wrong about this, but uh, I would believe they are the ones who are courageous enough and, and dedicated and not in a superficial way to understand a field or discipline that is not their own, but that matters to where they want to work. And and as people have often said, Medici effect is one of the terms that are being used, and we used it in, in the Vespucci initiative. The most interesting work happens at the interface, at the intersection of the traditional disciplines or even new disciplines. Um, that is a lot of work. It's hard work, but, and, and you know, I, I, I haven't done well. Uh, most of us are not doing too well, but we can at least try to do something or improve in understanding one or two other domains. For me, I guess it was communication, language, um, um, human thinking quite broadly, but, but 
but not engineering, which I have been trained in, uh, that helped me deal with human com computer interaction problems uh, in a way where I sometimes thought, well, you guys designing, you know, uh, guidelines for designing user interfaces, don't you know that, right? And well, no, uh, most don't because that's not their specialty. So it's, it's uh, if, if there's any recipe, any, anything I would place, you know, my bet on, it would be the, the uh, those who are willing to work at the periphery, first of all, which many are not, and, and, and nobody's being encouraged to do that. And at that periphery, um, keep an open eye or keep an open mind for what's outside uh, that region at the periphery of which they work and what relates in, in one way or another. And that's often, again, a, a question of passion and, 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 mm. and often, uh, of, 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 of coincidences. Uh, understand what's on the other side and, and try to relate to this. And I've seen a couple of, typically this comes, you know, past the PhD because before you cannot uh, go into too many directions. But if somebody during a PhD or right afterwards um, discovers a totally different maybe discipline or, or field or concern or practical area, um, that seems to say something to what they are interested in and, 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 and seems to, to expect something from what they are working on, then progress is made. Mm. This has been an amazing conversation, Werner. Um, thanks so much for sharing your deep experience and, and thoughts for the listeners. Um, highly you, appreciate it. For bringing it out, it's, uh, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah thanks um thank you really honestly yeah thanks so much Werner. thanks all this was cloud reachers i'm tommy Kopinen. stay tuned see ya ciao